0: So congrats to the team that won the Super Bowl that just happened yesterday. That's super exciting.
1: Yeah, man. What a crazy event that was. There was uh, some points scored and stuff, too. That was wild.
0: Yeah. Good job, men
1: yep. on team. Football players. Good job, football players that won, that the game ended and you had more points than the other team. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we begin our pivot into being a sports podcast, if people can't tell right now.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought the Super Bowl happened like two weeks ago. So this is catching me off guard. But I'm so glad no one died. And there was no uh, a giant eagle did not fly onto the field and grab anybody for its nest. So all good.
1: Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil On this episode, we speak to Dr. Emily Contois, an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa.
2: Food is one of these social and cultural spaces in which we create and reflect who we are. These ideas about gender, about race, about social class, about sexuality. She recently published
0: her first book. Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food Media and Culture. For listeners who might not be familiar with how gender is a construct, (laughs) I think you will be in for a treat with this episode. We talk about Judith Butler, we talk about yogurt, we talk about all the ways in which food can be a tool of the patriarchy. So with that said, here's our interview with Dr. Emily Contois. When we're talking about dudes, what are we
2: talking about? So I'm talking about a particular kind of masculinity when I'm talking about the dude. Um, So this is the slacker, right? This is the average or even below average guy um, who resists some of the demands of sort of conventional masculinity, right? To be a breadwinner, to be lean and muscular, to be aggressive and assertive. Instead, he just opts out of that struggle, man. Um, But the piece of it that's kind of theoretically important is that he maintains all the privilege of that conventional masculinity. So in thinking about how the dude provided some flexibility for some men to move through the world, ones who already held a lot of privilege, it didn't dismantle any of that as we think about what it does for, you know, gender equality and sort of a world of greater inclusion.
0: Right. So it's not necessarily an abandonment of the gender binary or the kind of accoutrement of masculinity, right? There's there's still that. He is
2: still a man, I guess, in a sense, like in the traditional sense. Yes. It's still upholding sort of all those structures of power. Um, So we think about, you know, the limited things it does for women, for femininity, for different kinds of sexualities. It's still upholding a very white, very heteronormative, um, typical type of manhood with just a little bit of flexibility built in.
0: Okay. And to be clear, can a woman be a dude? Much like in the sense of uh, Beyonce saying that a woman can also be a player.
2: Yes. Women can absolutely be dudes. Black guys can be dudes. But in the sources that I looked at, right, what we see over and over again are white dudes, right, who are heterosexual, who are able bodies, able-bodied. That's what we see over and over again. So, okay. Like when you talk
0: about dude food, what
2: is that? Yeah. I'll preface it though that – like I'm not the one to fight. Defi- like I'm the one trying to define the genre of dude food, not the one like carrying its flag and hoping <laughs> it continues into the world. Um, I love your piece, right? about the words you will not use in your food criticism. And like man food and lady drinks are on the list. And so that's a big part about what this book is about, the damage that it does when food media and food advertising continue using those kinds of words. But yeah, so one of the case studies in my book is called powerful yogurt. Um, <laughs> actually just stopped making the yogurt. I still make shakes and oats. Um, but it was this, you know, monstrous sized yogurt. It's eight ounces instead of the five ounces. It's more typical for yogurts. Um, it is black packaging. You know, it has a the sign of a bowl, right? Is the logo. Um, and then on the side of every package are these chiseled six pack abs like right into the plastic. <laughs> and so so materially, you know, textually, you know, everything about this brand was to convince men that it was manly to eat yogurt. Because at the moment when it comes out in sort of the early, you know, 20 teens, um, they make the argument that there hadn't been a yogurt directly marketed to men. And before that, most Americans sort of perceived, they said, you know, yogurt is this feminine food and that, you know, everyone was talking about, you know, Activia, like digestive health and <laughs> everything was, you know, pink and white, like the the color palette of the yogurt aisle used to look really different. And now we have these black colored yogurts so that men can feel manly (laughs) as they eat them.
0: So, okay, for people who are sort of new to thinking about marketing and discourse and like how those things evolve, the question inevitably pops up of just who's responsible for this? Like, why is this happening? Um, You know, it's easy to say society is making this happen. But like, there are people in society, right? People make these decisions to to paint a yogurt container black and put abs on it. Uh, How do you explain this?
2: Exactly. So I think we often want to talk about representation, right? And representation matters deeply um, when we think about, particularly right in my book, looking how gender and whiteness are represented in these ads. But the next step is the actual diversity and inclusion work in the marketing industry from the steps of you know, product ideation all the way to the creative campaigns, to who is the voice of them, Um, that as we diversify these industries, um, that that's a piece of how we move this forward um, into a better moment in how we think about how we reflect identity in food. Um, So the book kind of combines, right, that cultural studies approach of like looking at the ads as texts and reading them closely, analyzing them, putting them in historical context, but there's also the practical logistical ways that those ads get made. Um, So I always, you know, tell my students, right, part of what I'm training you to do is that you'll be the one in that meeting, right? Who's like, Mm -hmm. no, this is a sexist (laughs) ad. Like, this is a racist (laughs) ad. We are not doing this. Um, Because, I mean, a lot of those decisions, right, they get made in those rooms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think what's so fascinating, though, is that some of these, like, I don't know if you read about the, you know, Velveeta, you know, Velveeta shell and cheese, you know, this, like, microwave cheesy pasta. One of the campaigns that I analyzed is, you know, that guy, you know, right. And he is exactly the dude, mm-hmm. right. Like we are celebrating him because he put a skylight in his bedroom last year and it <laughs> looks great. Right. Like he works at the mall as a, you know, a toy helicopter salesman, <laughs> right. Like he gets paid to play, right. Like we are celebrating that guy, you know. Um, but Whitening Kennedy made that, right? They are the same agency that gave us dream crazier with Serena mm. Williams, right? Which like makes me cry every dang time I see it, right? You feel so moved um, by the power of women and of black women athletes, right? So in thinking about where these particular marketing campaigns come from, sometimes they're coming from really, you know, smart, creative, thoughtful agencies um, and marketing folk, right? Like I teach the history of this industry, they have always considered themselves the most modern. Modern of people, mm. right? That they are attuned to the culture, they are part of moving it forward. Um, and even though it has continued to have, you know, just like food media, these significant problems with diversity and inclusion. Um, like they do speak as if they really deeply care about this work um and so there's a lot of there's a lot of contradiction and frustration there but i hope that answers the question a little bit so like
0: no yeah totally i guess to get to the root i just want to keep getting there because it's so fascinating who benefits from the existence of the dude as a concept right as an identity as an ideology
2: yeah so it upholds the existing power structures that benefit straight white men so it does nothing to dismantle the patriarchy it does nothing to dismantle white supremacy Um, so it upheld the existing power structures at b all
0: right i just want to stop here because the concept of the dude is so potent and interesting (laughs) because you don't think about it right you just think hey dude but justin i want to know do you resonate with the dude
1: Do I have any dude tendencies, I guess? Yeah. I think I was more of a dude living below the Mason-Dixon line than I am existing out here on the West Coast, right? Like, being into spice and stuff, uh, Being you know, me being from Louisiana is a natural thing. So I always had that. Obliterating my taste buds with cheap beer and shit like that is definitely something else. Eating an abundance of, like, not just like red meat, but just meat in general for dishes is something that I definitely grew up doing, and, and and especially like down south, like the food, the the bigger the better kind of thing. Being proud of being able to consume huge portion sizes, being able to drink a lot, like that kind of stuff. Like I I grew up around that, so it's definitely definitely some some dude history when it comes to my life. It's a little bit different now. I think my behavior has been modified, but uh, definitely back home it was like that. What what about you, Soleil? What is Soleil a dude, I guess, is the best question.
0: I would say, I'm, similarly to you, I've had a very doodly past. There you go. <laughs> when I was in high school, I subscribed to Maxim Magazine. That's how doodly I was.
1: <laughs> oh, man. This is, that's all. I love it. Why? That Why, was a by dark time. I mean, Wh-
0: you know, a young queer woman. There wasn't a lot out there for, for people like us. And I was like, ooh, like there's Jessica Alba on the cover of this magazine.
1: Ooh, give me, give
0: <laughs> and they me talk about like beer and whiskey and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's me.
1: <laughs> I mean. Of
0: course, it's like a grossly misogynistic rag. But that's the thing, right? Dude is a trap. There you go. For a long time, I was one of those people who was like, I'm a cool girl. I drink whiskey. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, so, I it <laughs> My liquor selection is very oriented towards that still. Um, I no longer think it makes me cool. It just makes me a person who drinks whiskey. But, like, at the time, right, like, carrying that, carrying that implication was really important for me personally and my identity, I guess, my gender identity as a cool girl, you know? And, like, that is such a it's so tempting especially when you're a little bit queer and it's also just really misogynistic you don't realize it at the time and in reflection you're like oh yeah that's where that came from
1: hey there's always time for change
0: we could always go back to being dudes
1: i mean that's always like an inch away ain't it going back to like the marketing element of it i'm always i'm curious about this too because i feel like Over the last year, like the country has gone through or is going through, I guess, a racial awakening of some sorts, reckoning of some sorts. And, um, you know, I know they're going to be like companies that try to hop on this train and are going to try to diversify the representation they have in their commercials and the audiences that they're speaking to or at least make the effort to do so. But do you think that's going to, like what this last year, what we've gone through in this last year, do you think that's going to have a lasting impact?
2: So I want to be so hopeful, right? That this is Mm -hmm. a big social, cultural, historical, political, economic moment like the late 1960s was. But when mm. we look at the huge similarity in the causes, right, that particularly people of color are still fighting for, right, it's the same, right? Like we've made incremental progress in some ways. And so when my students asked me, you know, what was most frustrating about writing this book? Um, that, you know, some of the examples that I draw from are from the early 2000s, right? Like Coke Zero comes out in 2005. Like we can look at that mm. and say like, oh, that was a different Moment, right? Like that, that was just, you know, a different time. But some of the yogurts I'm looking at, y'all, they're from 2016, Ooh. right? I'm looking at campaigns <laughs> from 2019, right? Oh like it's God. startling and frustrating and infuriating, right? When we see the lack of progress um, in the ways we talk about, you know, how men are supposed to be quote unquote real men, right? And what that has to do with things like yogurts or weight loss or cooking from a cookbook. Um, so I'm hopeful, right? As a college professor, I get to work with the next generation of critical thinkers and activists um, who are going to keep fighting this fight. And I have great hope and optimism and faith in them. But when I keep seeing these campaigns, I do, I get really mad, and it keeps happening. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, like, what does it all add up to? Like the,
0: there could be the argument, which I hear a lot, and I'm sure you hear a lot too, that, you know, there are much bigger battles to fight um, as you're alluding to, right. There's these huge Across many industries, like like struggles to diversify and in- include, right, and and make them more equitable, um, and is tweeting about yogurt like the thing also that we
2: that we can do that does it matter? Um, like, what are the stakes here? So what I found is that the terrain of food is one in which all of these struggles were so apparent. Mm. It was so close Mm. to the surface. So you could dismiss it, right? As less important than um, talking about hunger, right? Of reforming um, the SNAP program, right? Like there are lots and lots of priorities that are all part of this. Um, But it's another way in our everyday daily life, we see these reflections of who we are and who we get to be who we get to imagine is possible for us. So on that level, it does matter, and I think it's a fight worth fighting, um, that if advertising is this language of our consumer culture, and if we are a nation that's so persuaded by things like commodity activism, right? that Mm -hmm. voting with our dollars is as important as voting with our actual votes, Mm -hmm. um, that Mm -hmm. how we act in a consumer culture, what we expect of brands, um, how we want these industries to move forward Forward and make change, that that is on that level um, of thinking about our own political action. And so it might seem silly, right, to look to a book about dudes and about yogurt and about cookbooks and Twitter um, to be able to find some of the solutions of how we're going to move forward as a country. But I hope it does play a part in exactly that story. So, okay,
0: one thing that I've noticed in the past for very long years is that, you know, On the one hand, people like us are told to keep politics out of food, but politicians Mm -hmm. aren't really that hesitant about bringing food into politics. Um, I'm thinking specifically, you know, because today's We were talking on the day of the inauguration um, of former Vice President Mike Pence's comments about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden trying to take red meat out of the mouths of Americans. Um, (laughs) You know, the the repeated rhetoric that the left wants to take hamburgers away from Americans. Just they seem to know what it means. And (laughs) I would love to hear just about like your observations of just how nationalism, how ideology have embraced food as a rhetorical element.
2: Absolutely. So you're right to point to meat as this food that has connoted not just masculinity, um, but a class-based sort of ability to eat well. Um, I mm. love Hasia Diner's history. She writes about um, Italian and Jewish and Irish immigrants all coming to the United States in those first you know, really big waves of immigration in the late 19th century from Europe. And what defined particularly the Italian-American experience was to be able to eat meat right? Like Italian American cuisine is quite different from Italian cuisine, in part because of that wide availability. And so when we think about those immigration narratives becoming a part of sort of this American story of who we are, the ability to eat well, and to eat meat in particular, right, as something that is expensive and resource intensive, um, that that has defined what it means to be an American, right, for more than a century. Um, And so for, you know, Pence in those remarks, right, to say that the left is coming for your meat as we think about what individual changes we might embark upon as we think about climate change and the future of our earth. Um, we can understand why that resonates in a particular way um, of what's being taken from someone, right, who really feels that like being able to eat meat is central to defining us as Americans. Um, another example, too, is thinking about in those earlier months of COVID-19 in the United States uh, that Trump made sure the meat packing plants stayed open and functional despite mm. the rates of disease, right, of the many people, many workers, right, who were falling ill, who are dying in some cases, that we were going to keep those open because we couldn't be a nation without meat filled in the shelves in the grocery store, right? That that would be- this such important image of a, a, you know, a nation in crisis to not have enough meat. Um, And so it is, it's this hugely meaningful signifier when we think about um, particularly gender and class, and then how that intersects with race as well. Um, That a lot of the backlash that I'm looking at in the book um, is about this destabilization of particularly a white straight masculinity.
0: Right. So, like, what would it take to reframe, um, you know, the American diet and American identity in a way that is more amicable to realities of climate change?
2: This is a good question. And I answer it as someone who grew up in Montana, mm. right, by beef production, right, is one of our main sort of contributions, um, a state that has two senators and one representative. Right, we don't have a lot of political mm. representation. We don't have a lot of people, <laughs> and so you know that beef production is about people's livelihoods as much as it about is about you know defining who we are as Americans. Um, I think one of the things though is as we think about the cosmopolitan, um, you know, diverse experience of being in a city, right, where you see how other people eat, um, to realize that you know this gigantic hunk of meat filling up half your plate, you know, is this meat plus two veg sort of formula. Um, But that's not how everyone in the world eats, that there are all sorts of other wonderful, delicious ways of eating. I think what I am so frustrated by is how all of these alternative meats and plant-based options seem to be just trying to replicate meat to become a substitute for meat instead of sort of reimagining where, you know, a source of protein fits into a dish or fits into our diets. Um, That I don't know that we really need an impossible burger that bleeds as much as we need like rethinking the grammar of our meals and how it fits into, you know, a broader, you know, global sense of how we can eat and think about our futures together. So I wish I had a really good answer, right, of like how we could convince everyone that that's the way we should move forward. But it was really interesting to see in this election, right, this fear, um, you know, I think uh, Tulsi Gabbard and um, Cory Booker, uh, right, two candidates who were vegans. They're our first vegans to run for the office. And so seeing um, the negative response, right, in sort of uh, more Republican, conservative leaning areas that having a vegan candidate or a vegan president, um, that they would want to change your diet, right? That it comes back to these ideas about freedom and choice and abundance um, that are so central to how we define who we are. And so if there's that sense that those things are at risk, that explains some of that resistance. I think there are other ways to have that conversation.
0: I guess it's frustrating, right? Because of the stickiness of the idea of Masculinity, uh, as you mentioned before, we're you know, we're already in 2021 and we're still seeing these like really binaristic representations of gender um, that are pretty regressive. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to take a lot of time, unfortunately, that we don't have to deprogram. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleil and we're back with Dr. Emily Contois.
1: Emily, you have a, uh, a really fantastic short video on your Twitter from October um, that honestly would make anybody that follows your work kind of tear up, but it's you opening a copy of Diner's Dudes and Diets. I've always been curious like what that moment is like.
2: It was amazing to see it in print and hold it in my hands. And because it's an academic book that builds on like every intellectual thing that I know at this point, right? This book started when I was an undergraduate trying to understand diet culture all around me. So I've been working on it in one way or another Mm. for 15 years. And as an academic book, right? You go to conferences, people ask you questions, some people push you back about what what you're saying you go through peer <laughs> review twice, sometimes more than that, right? Like I had cleared a lot of hurdles before I got to open that package and share that moment with my husband and then with the world that like <laughs> it's a book, like it's I finally a book.
1: And one of the things that I think all three of us know well is uh writing about specific issues that you know there might be a a significant following of readers who might object to whatever thoughts we have, even if they are fair and thoroughly thought out and explained, like people get, people feel tight about, you know, when they're challenged on something. And so I'm curious for you too, like when, if you think back like in the early days of, you know, whatever, whatever argument, whatever discussion that we want to bring to the public conscience, we have these like test run conversations, be it with like family and friends. Can you remember those (laughs) early days when you wanted to discuss like kind of this genre of food and you were kind of like filtering through the ideas and having these early conversations. What was what was that process like? Well, I think
2: one of the funniest things about this book is that a lot of the food products that I'm analyzing are ones that my husband <laughs> brought into our house, oh, right? Like he's always of a <laughs> part of the research. And I'm just like, what is this? I'm going to have to write about this now. Um, and so, you know, we've had those conversations about, you know, look at this packaging. This is insane how it's trying to connote masculinity so strongly, Mm. Um, looking at the world of supplements, right, how it's always trying to scream its masculinity with this idea of a nutritional scientific authority, uh, that this is how you can build up your muscles and reach, you know, your highest, most optimized potential. Um, So we've had lots of funny conversations at home. And then some of the really great conversations are with my students um, when they tell me about their families, of what it's like to be, um, for example, you know, a young Latino man who wants to be vegan, right? And to hear about, Mm. you know, the generational sort of response to that of like, what do you mean you're not going to eat meat anymore? Um, (laughs) And so I learned so much from my students too. And they've been really open to having these kinds of conversations. Um, But yeah, when I wanted to write a piece about, Uh, chicken wings and spiciness and what it means to perform eating that food in public, Um, there were a lot of people, right, online who wanted Mm -hmm. to push back against this idea that food is one of these social and cultural spaces in which we create and reflect who we are. These ideas about gender, about race, about social class, about sexualities, about whether you're from an urban and rural area, you know, where in the world you're from, um, that some people who hadn't ever been exposed to the idea that, Gender is a social and cultural construction, that was a big mm-hmm. leap. And mm-hmm. they were not ready to take that with me.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is very much a, a gateway idea. Because once you accept it, then everything just opens up, right? And it's so much easier to read the things that you kind of left alone as just things in themselves, as like having such rich subtext.
2: Absolutely. It's so fascinating. Questioning all those assumptions right? Like, I think that's why I love teaching pop culture in addition to food, right? All these things that my students think are just, you know, superfluous and silly. Like, why would we look at this through the lens of sort of cultural theory and cultural studies and understand how it speaks to power, how it is this terrain of struggle, um, that everything they think, they, they never look at it the same after they have those tools.
1: When I think of like, dude food, And, like, relating that to, like, ballparks and stadiums and professional sports, like the places where, you know, guys want to eat the biggest burger that they find or it's, like, inherently tied to, like, drinking a bunch of beer, eating wings or some shit like that. But it's funny because, like, you know, when it comes to basketball, the NBA, which is, like, you know, uh, predominantly POC, people of color league, mostly black athletes, they don't eat the way that the guys in this genre of dude food eat. Like the stadiums are marketing these dude food items, but the players themselves are trying to focus on like healthier non-meat alternatives and like these just healthier diets. And I'm always curious if like uh, in the reaction that you get from, um, you know, from some of the pieces that you do, like, are there a lot of like sports fans in there? Are there people, you know, like just the very jock of jocks that get upset by this? Like what's (laughs) what's weaved in there?
2: So there are these ideas about protein, Mm. right? That have been so thoroughly, not just masculinized, but like athleticized Mm. um, that we're all supposed to be, you know, eating all of this protein as this, you know, it has this health halo compared to the low fat moment we went through, the low carb moment we're still somehow in um, that protein is this good nutrient for a lot of eaters um, that connotes that sense of sort of athletic strength. Um, So you're stealing my thunder (laughs) a little bit. Like this is what I'm thinking about for my second book Ah. of like, where does this idea come from that, even as like everyday people, right, who are not professional mm-hmm. athletes, where does this idea come from that we're supposed to eat like an mm. athlete? So, I'm really interested in seeing how the consumer, our consumer culture, right, has really purposefully pushed that idea um, that we are supposed to, you know, have pre workout, that we're mm. supposed to have recovery foods, that we need really expensive sneakers and, you know, recovery clothing, right? Yeah. Like, my husband has all these adorable loungewear things where it's like, you know, that, um, you know, Tom Brady is sponsoring. Um, I mean, he sees through them, Like, let me be clear. Um, But it's still really funny as we think about how that idea comes through. So that's where I'm interested in going next, seeing where this food media space collides with sports media and these ideas about sort of the individualized athleticism that is assumed and expected from so many Americans in a way that does not acknowledge um, our inequitable healthcare system um, or how much of this is viewed as a personal responsibility Um, that if we really think about the lack of sort of diversity and inclusion and equity um, in this food space like I think thinking about bodies in addition to food is one of the ways in and sports gives us that interesting arena to do
1: that's really that's great I would absolutely buy that book
2: yay Test market of one. Justin Phillips is fine. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Stamp of approval. Damn we'll
2: sure. put that on the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just, Justin Phillips is quoted as saying, damn, I'd buy that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much have the mechanics of preparing meat gone into shaping dude food, like being able to buy grills or these outdoor grills or some kind of like uh, smokers or some shit, some kind of like very dude food related equipment. Has that helped shape it too?
2: Yeah, I think it's such a good point about sort of the the various ways that the dude remains this privileged masculine figure. Um, and mm. so that access, right, to all of those sort of culinary technologies to be able to make that food in your backyard um, is certainly part of that. Um, and they so was talking... You you know earlier about sort of the regressiveness of some of the gender sort of norms and, you know, binary applications that I'm looking at in the book, um, that those go back, you know, if we do w- sort of one big hop, right, to the 1950s, right? This culture mm-hmm. of containment that was, you know, panicked about the Cold War, about how we were going to represent this particular kind of a strong American nation, and that maintaining the boundaries of heterosexual femininity and masculinity was really big in that. And so that's one of those big moments where that grilling culture, right, as the mm-hmm. way that men cook, as the space in which men can be domestic, um, that the grill, right, that culture comes out in a big way in the 50s and 60s, and then has maybe only increased since then, right? When we think Mm -hmm. about the, you know, the gigantic outdoor setups, you know, you have in a McMansion, right? This whole second Mm -hmm. kitchen that's outside with all um, of these, you know, incredible sort of, you know, grills and smokers and all sorts of things. Um, But I think, too, I think you're absolutely right that it is not just the privilege of of masculinity, um, but tied up always, right? In this sense of relative affluence, at least, mm-hmm. and sort of this white masculinity that's trying to maintain its status and its power and its authority. Um, and it's so like, you know, you're talking about Judith Butler, like made me think about, you know, one of the things I'm, you know, hopeful of when I look at advertising is that it's a part of this process of signification and resignification, right? Of opening up possibilities, right? Like who says diet sodas have to be considered feminine, right? Like we can redo all of that, Um, that gender is only what we make it um, in all of the ways that it circulates in culture, including how it comes to be attached to particular foods at particular times in particular ways. So all of that is up for grabs. So that's why it matters um, that we go back and question and take apart, right? These binary applications of gender.
0: Yeah, you know, I think when you put it that way, when you say that everything's up for grabs, it's really freeing, and I hope that the people listening to this interview can kind of come to think of it that way too. Is that you don't have to be constrained by what other people expect you to do or eat or love or whatever. That it's okay if you like a a diet soda or or a steak or whatever. Um, it doesn't. It can say something about you, but doesn't have to say the specific things that other people want to say about you. Let's say, you know, you have a a guy who is listening and he really likes steaks and potatoes and he likes grilling and all that stuff, but doesn't want to necessarily think of it as a bad choice that he's making. Or, you know, like a lot of these discussions tend to fall into morality, right? Like, I don't want to uphold gender norms. I don't want to be be a bad person. Because what would you tell that person?
2: This is so funny because I have a friend, right, who does smoke and grill and eats, you know, these incredible meat dishes for like almost every single dinner I've ever seen him <laughs> post on social media. And I'm like, it's okay. Like, I'm not coming for you. Like, it's just, you know, sort of showing how these norms circulate in our culture um, that, you know, I, to explain it to my students, right. And I think there is a section in the book where I say, you know, my target, right, is never white men, right? Like, that's not what I'm coming for, right? Like, I'm married to a white man. My dad is a white men, right? Like that, you know, Come, that is not what this is about. This is showing how patriarchy maintains its power. How does whiteness work so that we can track it and trace it and be able to dismantle it so that we can move forward to that food media future that's more just and more joyful. Like that's what we're trying to do. And I think that's an amazing spot to end on.
0: As a final note, um, can you just tell our listeners where they can find you and support your work, find your book?
2: Yes. So you can find my website, EmilyContois.com. I'm at emilycantois on all of the social medias and you can find Diners, Dudes and Diets wherever books are sold. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: This was a really great interview and I hope that our listeners have been prompted to think about why they want to eat the chicken wings or why they don't want to eat the chicken wings. But before (laughs) we go... We did just have the Super Bowl happen, um, right. and congratulations again to that team, team. that one. Yep,
1: yep, good for that. Very good. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but I want to hear more from you, Justin, our resident sports guy, just because you actually watch a sport and I don't. Um, <laughs> just like more about this, that disconnect between what athletes do and what we do when we watch them.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl is meant to be, um, it's like the Mardi Gras of sports. It's all about, like, overindulgence and you're going to be eating too much, drinking too much, you know, eating spicy things, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like part of the experience, right? And it's just thinking about what athletes eat to, to maintain their ability to play professional sports. They have really strict diets, which is nothing like what the fans consume while they're watching, and one person who has the strictest diet, actually, is Tom Brady, who plays for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who played in the Super Bowl. Um, he is a very health-conscious eater. And it's just really interesting to think that if Florida football fans, who, ha- who do are the type to eat a bunch of wings and all types of fried stuff and drink a ton of beer, if Florida football fans invited Tom Brady to their house to watch a game or something, he would not touch the food. So they can relate to him as an athlete. They can't relate to his diet. But I guess if you're winning, none of that matters.
0: He'd probably eat the celery they set out with the, the wings, right?
1: <laughs> that is true. You'd eat At the, the celery least. the celery by itself, not dipping it in anything, though.
0: And that is the manliest thing of all. And now it's time for our Dear Spicy segment. This week, we got a question from Stacy W. Hello, extra spicy people. My question has to do with why in the Bay Area, at least to my knowledge, there seems to be a lack of traditional Middle Eastern food. Like I have to go to Grass Valley to find an Israeli, a a traditional Israeli uh, takeout place. We've been to Austin. They have these little pop-ups. I can't seem to find that same thing in the Bay Area. And my new obsession cookbook, Palestine, um, and then before that, Jerusalem and Zahav, I'm obsessed with this type of cooking because I can't find anybody to make it for me. So can you speak to that and why, why this is, especially on the Israeli side? Why are there no Israeli restaurants? Why do I have to go to other states, cities, counties to go find it? Why not in the Bay Area? So it's a meaty one, uh, but we thought it would be great to throw the question to Samir McGannum who was one of our guests for last week's episode. Samir is the owner of Beit Rima.
3: I thought that was interesting that she thought it was so hard for her to get Israeli food because there's been a lot of Israeli restaurants opening in the Bay Area. You got Orange Hummus opening up and down the peninsula and more recently into the city. You have uh, Frenna's Bakery, my buddy who just opened up uh, Hummus Bodega, you have Y Sons Deli, which are also great guys, good friends of mine. And then you have uh, Sababa. So actually, there's been so many Israeli o- restaurants opening in San Francisco that that was the reason why I wanted to open up Beit Rima. I wanted to represent for Arabic food. I wanted people to know that, hey yes, Israelis have an eclectic background in their cuisine via their diaspora around the world and then coming back to the Middle East. And I'm flattered that they identify and celebrate and eat Palestinian food more than, you know, maybe their Eastern European foods. I'm flattered by that. But I want people to know and remember that, hey, this is Arabic food. This is Arabic food, too. And a lot of Israelis are are Arabs, you know, that came from Iraq, that came from Yemen, that maybe just came from from Lebanon, you know. So I wanted to represent Arabic food, and that's why I call Beit Rima Arabic comfort food, not Mediterranean food, not Middle Eastern food. I wanted to be specific. So yeah, she that that lady uh, maybe just needs to look in the you know look on like J Street uh article and they'll tell her all the israeli restaurants that are are around maybe she just needs to to know where to look because they're there
0: thanks again to dr emily cantois for being in conversation with us and to erica carlos for producing and editing this episode if you're enjoying extra spicy please share it with a friend and give it a rating on apple podcasts
1: and remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food life or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at Extra Spicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.